1 Samuel 2. Last week, we were in the first 11 verses of 1 Samuel 2, speaking of praise. Praise unto God. As Hannah praised the Lord, we reflected upon our God and we praised Him in our hearts and minds as we considered the, the importance of praise and how praise drives us to the very deepest sense of humility, something which is essential to the Christian walk. Today we're going to talk about distinctions of obedience. It's the title of the message, The Distinctions of Obedience. Jesus Christ said this in Matthew chapter 7, verses 15 through 20. Beware of false prophets, which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inward, they, inwardly excuse me, they are ravening wolves. Ye shall know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes of thorns or figs of thistles? Even so, every good tree bringeth forth good fruit, but a corrupt tree bringeth forth evil fruit. A good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit, neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. Every tree that bringeth forth good fruit, that bringeth not forth good fruit, excuse me, is hewn down and cast into the fire. Wherefore, Jesus said, by their fruits ye shall know them. By their fruits ye shall know them. In other words, our actions what comes out of us reflects what is inside of us. Our actions reflect our hearts. Names mean very little. Labels mean very little. We assume labels, do we not? Our church, perhaps more than many other churches, assumes labels. We are, if we were to parse it all out, an independent, fundamental, Bible-believing Baptist church, if we wanted to to do a, a nice long label there. All of those things are things that we would identify with. We're Christians, we're independent Baptists, we're fundamentalists. These are things that some of us, more than others, might identify, but that, that's what our church identifies as. But labels are only as good as the degree to which our actions back up our designations, our titles, our positions. Everything that we claim to be is only as good as the degree that we live up to those claims, right? I could tell you today that I'm a world-class soccer player. World-class. Should have been in the Olympics, World Cup, whole nine yards. Should, should have been there. But when I go out to the field and you see how I play, you'll soon find out that I'm not a world-class soccer player. I can say whatever I want, but if my actions don't back up my words, then my words are empty. Today we're going to look at the distinctions between two families. One of these families has all the titles, all the distinctions, all of the status of being godly, God's representatives, but they were in action rebellious and disobedient. The other family has no particular titles or distinctions to speak of, humble, and yet they were obedient and virtuous. God help us to be the latter. That we would not rest on our titles. That we would not rest on our associations. That we would not just think that because we are from a good family that we're good people. That we would not rest on the church that we go to 
or the positions that we have in the in said church or in any ministry, but that we would pursue the very deepest loyalties to true biblical obedience and allow our actions to speak for us. Let's read this morning, beginning in verse 12 of 1 Samuel 2. Now the sons of Eli were sons of Belial. They knew not the Lord. And the priest's custom with the people was that when any man offered sacrifice, the priest's servants came while the flesh was in seething with a flesh hook of three teeth in hand. And he struck it in the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. All that the flesh hook brought up, the priest took for himself. So they did in Shiloh unto the Israel, all the Israelites that came thither. We'll pick up there in just a few moments. In verse 12, we see this statement. Now the sons of Eli were sons of Belial. They knew not the Lord. This is the first introduction that we have to this family of distinction. Now, we've heard of Eli already. I've introduced you at least in part to Eli. Eli was the high priest at the time. He was also, as it were, an acting judge um, of the people. And this was the time of the judges. There was no king in Israel. God would raise up judges when they were needed, but God was the king. God was intended to be the king in Israel. And so Eli was this man, but this is the first introduction that we have to his sons. As a matter of fact, it's the first time we find out he has sons. And it's not a very flattering introduction, is it? The introduction tells us they were sons of Belial. Now, one thing that all Israel shared in common was the tabernacle. All God-fearing Israelites would come and worship Jehovah in the tabernacle. Eli was the high priest in this tabernacle. He was the spiritual leader, God's representative on earth. Now, as one would expect, Eli left the daily ministration, the daily duties of the tabernacle to his sons. The scriptures tell us in Numbers chapter 4, verse 47, that between the ages of 30 and 50, every Levite, particularly um, depending on their, their branch, the sons of Aaron and the, the descendants of Aaron would become the high priests and, and those doing the sacrifices. The other Levites would, would perform various other duties such as uh, caring for the tabernacle and such. Uh, the sons of Aaron and, and the sons of Levi were to minister between the ages of 30 and 50. So we can assume that Eli's sons are somewhere above the age of 30 and they are the ones that are doing the active ministry in the temple. And or excuse me, in the tabernacle, and they were sons of Belial. Now, it wasn't too long ago that we traced this word Belial through the scriptures. And what we found when we did so is that the word literally speaks of worthlessness, the concept of that which is without profit. It's a word that has deep roots in sinfulness and in association with the things of Satan, as it were. And that's what these men are called. These men are called sons of Belial. And by, by saying that, what the scriptures are saying is that they have no moral or spiritual integrity at all. And in this verse, we see the writer directly correlate Belial with this phrase, they knew not the Lord. They didn't know God. They did not have a relationship with God wait a minute, who are these men? These men are the high priest and his sons. 
These men are those that are ministering in the tabernacle. They are at the very peak of all spiritual leadership in the entire nation of Israel. And the scriptures tell us they did not know the Lord. They did not have a personal relationship with God. Now, this is not necessarily uncommon in any age, is it? That men who claim to represent God do not even themselves have a personal relationship with God. And how is it that the writer of the book was able to discern the spiritual state of Eli's sons? Well, first, we know that the Word of God is inspired. That the Holy Spirit of God is the one who authored all of Scripture, and so if it's in the Word of God, we know it's true. But second, what we're going to find is that the author, in order to substantiate his claims that these men were sons of Belial, will show us their actions. And their actions will tell us everything we need to know about these men. And that's what we see as we continue through the text. Look at verse 13. And the priest's custom with the people was that when any man offered sacrifice, the priest's servants came while the flesh was in seething with a flesh hook of three teeth in his hand. So the writer informs us that these men, that Eli's sons, or perhaps Eli himself, we don't know, but, but it, the, the implication seems to be that it's Eli's sons, began a custom. They got into this office, they began doing these um, sacrifices, and they said, we're going to do things just a little bit differently. And so he began a custom, and the custom was this, that when people would bring their meat to the altar and begin to uh, somehow burn off the fat, boil it to get the fat off the meat, or uh, whatever way they were going to do it, they would come and they would do something that was outside the norm. You say, well, what do you mean the norm? Well, in Leviticus chapter 7, verses 31 and 32, the scriptures tell us this. And the priests shall burn the fat upon the altar, but the breast shall be Aaron's and his sons, and the right shoulder shall be given unto the priest for a heave offering of the sacrifices of your peace offerings. And so according to Levitical law, when a child of Israel came to offer offerings unto the Lord at the tabernacle, the people were to give the fat of that animal to be burned upon the altar by the high priest, and the breast and the right shoulder of that animal were to be given to the priest as their portion of the offering, and the breast and the right shoulder were to be that which was eaten by the priest. So they would not eat the fat, they would burn the fat, they would eat the breast and the right shoulder of the animal that was being brought. But notice what Eli's sons did. They would send a servant, they would not even go themselves, and they would go to the people that were seeking to separate the fat from the meat. And they would take a flesh hook, which is like a big fork with three prongs, and they would stick it into that pot and they would pull it up. And their custom was whatever comes up is ours. However much of it comes up is ours. We get it, we eat it, and that's the way it goes. Verse 14, notice what the scriptures say. And he struck it into the pan or kettle or cauldron, depending on how, or pot, depending on how they were preparing the meat. And all that the flesh hook brought up, the priest took for himself. So they did in Shiloh unto all the Israelites that came thither. So they were not careful to make sure that they just got the right shoulder and breast. They were not careful to make sure the fat was burned off. And in fact, we'll see in just a moment, they wanted the fat to stay on. And they didn't even go themselves. They sent the servant to do it for them. 
So these men had set up customs that were unusual and did not do a very good job of aligning themselves with what God had prescribed. But it gets worse. Look at verse 15. Also, before they burned the fat, the priest servant came and said to the man that sacrificed, give flesh to roast for the priest, for he will not have sodden flesh of thee, but raw. So they'd come up and they'd say, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. I see you're about to cook that meat. We don't want it cooked. We want it raw. We don't want it. We just, just, just leave it just as it is. Just give it to the priest right now. Well, this is a big problem. They didn't want it boiled. They didn't want it cooked. They wanted it raw. And they wanted it before the fat was removed. And notice verse 16. And if any man said unto him, let them not fail to burn the fat presently, and then take as much as thy soul desireth, then he, that would be the servant, would answer him, nay, but thou shalt give it me now, and if not, I will take it by force. The deviance of their behavior really comes to light in verse 16. All Israel knew that these priests, what they were doing was not quite right. They were not coming themselves to take of the meat as was expected. They were sending a servant to do it. Possibly, out of courtesy at first at least, the people were willing to give the meat. Okay, that's fine. You can have it. Um, they were willing to give it to the servant of the priest. This isn't normal, but maybe there's something going on. They, they could trust, perhaps, that the priest would finish the job, would be honorable in the sight of God, would remove the fat, burn the fat, take the meat, cook the meat, those sorts of things that were ne- necessary. But remember from verse 13 that by this point in history, this had become a custom. It was the way, it was standard operating procedure. They didn't care what anyone thought. And they certainly didn't care what God thought. And by this point, the people of God knew that these men were not being honorable, nor were they being obedient in discharging their service. And verse 16 makes it very clear. As every once in a while, perhaps, a servant would come up to a man and say, we'd like that meat. And the man would say, okay, he can have the whole thing if he wants, but first let me get the fat off. This is what God wants. God wants the fat to be removed and to be burned on the altar. So let's just, I'll remove the fat, and then as soon as I've done that, here, it's all yours. And the servant would say, no, 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 no. I want it now. I want it raw. I want the fat. And the servant would say, or the, the, the man bringing the offering would say, but, but this, is, this is against what the Lord wants. I can't do this. And the servant says, well, you've got two choices. You either give it to me willingly or I'll take it from you by force. This was the spirit that was going on with Eli's children, with Eli's sons. Such was the depravity of these men that in the name of God, they were forcibly causing God's people to obey God's commands. And notice verse 17. Wherefore, the scriptures tell us, the sin of the young men was very great before the Lord, for men abhorred the offering of the Lord. The scriptures tell us that the sins of these men, the sons of Eli, was very great in the eyes of God. Now, we know that God hates all sin, right? All sin is wrong in the eyes of God. But the text reveals that these men's sin was particularly great before the Lord. And the reason given is this. Because their sinful actions not only showed their disdain for God and His Word, but their sinful actions also caused 
other men to disdain worshiping God, caused other men to hate worshiping God. When the feast days and the offerings drew near, the people of God thought upon their opportunity. They say, okay, it's coming up to a feast time. We've got to go into Jerusalem. We're going to take a a lamb and we're going to sacrifice that lamb on the altar. But wait, but wait. Ah, those sons of Eli. They are going to take the meat before it's burned, before the fat is burned off of it, before the fat is cooked off of it. They're going to... They're just going to bully me around. They're going to take my meat. Why do I even need to go? I can't even do what God has asked me to do. So why should I even worship? What's the point? Eli's sons were causing people to despair at worshiping God. The very leaders of worship in the nation were causing them to do this. For the godly in Israel, they were likely sickened by by Eli's sons' actions. Sickened that... In the same way, it might sicken us to hear of a man who claims to represent God, but he disdains the truth of God in word or in actions. Sickened them to the point, perhaps, where they said we would be better off simply not going up and offering offerings to God because making them just gives the sons of Eli another opportunity to disobey and disrespect God. And so God saw this sin as very great. Because their sin caused others to reject God, reject God's commandments and reject God's design. Now, it's one thing to pursue sin yourself. You stand before God and you'll answer for those one day. It's yet displeasing to the Lord. It's yet bringing you out of fellowship with God. It affects your prayer life. It reduces the ability of God to bless your life and ministry. But it is another thing entirely for you to knowingly lead others into sin through your actions. Such action is greatly abhorrent to the Lord. And so we're introduced to the family of Eli the high priest, men of Belial, men who are intended and indeed do, in a manner of speaking, represent God to the nation. They have reputation, they have status, they have standing, they've got all of the titles, but they were spiritually as dead as the seats that you're sitting in today. Now contrast these men, these religious leaders with the faithfulness and love of Samuel and his family, beginning in verse 18. Look at it with me through verse 21. But Samuel ministered before the Lord, being a child girded with a linen ephod. Moreover, his mother made him a little coat and brought it to him from year to year when she came up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. And Eli blessed Elkanah and his wife and said, The Lord give thee seed of this woman for the loan which is lent unto the Lord. And they went to their own house, and the Lord visited Hannah, so that she conceived and bare three sons and two daughters, and the child Samuel grew before the Lord. Samuel, as opposed to the sons of Eli, ministered before the Lord, literally meaning attend, to contribute. Uh, he, was, he was active in truly, genuinely serving the Lord. He was young, but he was obedient. He didn't have the position of influence, the position of power, but he loved and served God in faithfulness. And this faithfulness was a reflection of the faithfulness that his parents had. Though they had not raised Samuel and were not raising Samuel actively, there is no doubt that a part of Samuel's virtue was a reflection of their parents. You say, Pastor, why, would, why do you figure that? Well, let's talk about it together. Look at verse 19. It says, Moreover, his mother made him a little coat and brought it to him from year to year, 
when she came up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifices. Every year, the Bible says, Samuel's mother and father would faithfully come up for their yearly sacrifice. And every year, Hannah would bring Samuel a new coat, a token of the love that she still had for her son and a token of how much her son was regularly on her mind, even though they were apart from one another. Now, perhaps on Samuel's part, there was sadness at this separation. Can you imagine, perhaps with me, if we used our sanctified imagination, the yearly circumstance, right? Year one, year two, year three, those are pretty tiny coats. Uh, but, but as he begins to get more aware, he realizes, okay, so I've got a mother and a father. And I see them once a year and mom comes up to me and she gives me this coat that she's been making, a labor of love. And she tells me she loves me and that she misses me. And she's so happy to see me and oh, how much I've grown and oh, how strong I'm getting and oh, I'm such a handsome boy and all these things that you moms would say, right? And all of these things are happening and and maybe one year he looks at mom and he says, hey mom, why aren't you raising me? Hey mom, why am I here? You love me. You miss me. You can't wait to see me. Why am I here? Why this woman who says she loves me leaves me in the tabernacle instead of taking me home? And then Hannah would crouch down like she might do to her boy and lovingly look at him And say, Samuel, I do love you. I love you greatly. I do miss you. But she'd say this, Samuel, you were a gift to me from God. And I told God that if He would give you to me, that I would give you back to Him. And even though I love you, Samuel, and even though I miss you, Samuel, my love and obedience to my God means more to me than anything. And even though I think about you all the time, Samuel, it is my honor to give of my son to serve the Lord. In Samuel's service to God, Hannah was being faithful to her relationship with God, a relationship that was far more important to her than any earthly relationship. And so do you know what Samuel grew up seeing? Samuel grew up seeing a contrast. He saw Eli the high priest and he saw Eli's sons desecrating the sacrifices of God in the name of God. But he also saw a mother and a father who indeed loved him, but would not put any earthly affection above their love for God. And something about his parents' testimony rubbed off on him. And something about the way they lived their lives reflected into his heart. Because as we continue to look at the growth of Samuel, we'll find that he doesn't take the path of Eli and his sons, even though they're the ones he's around. He takes the path of virtue. Imagine seeing that. Every year seeing the love that his mother has for God when contrasted with the disdain of Eli's sons for God and for his word. And the difference 
was not in their positions of spiritual leadership. The difference was not their knowledge of, of the law of God. The difference was that his parents loved God and knew God, and Eli's sons did not love God and did not know God. And this was apparent in their actions. So verse 20 tells us that Eli saw it as well. That Eli blessed Elkanah and his wife and said, The Lord give thee seed of this woman for the loan which is lent to the Lord. And they went unto their own home. Eli, uh, El- Eli had been blessed by Samuel. So Eli thus in turn blesses Elkanah and his wife, petitioning of the Lord on their behalf, entreating the Lord on their behalf that Hannah would receive more children for the goodness and the obedience that they had shown in giving Samuel unto the Lord. And verse 21 tells us that the Lord was indeed entreated and gave Hannah according to Eli's blessing. In fact, she had three more sons and two daughters where she was willing to give one child unto the Lord in fulfillment of the vow that she had made unto God. God blessed her fivefold afterward. And this is consistent with the character of our God. That when we reflect a willingness to give unto the Lord without reserve, He shows Himself faithful both to meet our needs and is often known to give us exceeding abundantly above that which we could ask or think. So Eli was blessed by God through Samuel. Samuel's parents were blessed by God for their obedience. And Samuel grew into a virtuous man of God. Now, the contrast becomes even more clear as we step into verses 22 through 26 between Samuel and the sons of Eli. Look at verse 22. Now, Eli was very old and heard all that his sons did unto all Israel and how they lay with the women that assembled at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. Well, things just got a lot worse, didn't they? Eli is very old. This is likely likely some time has transpired since Eli blessing Elkanah and Hannah. Likely some time has transpired um, since the time that we saw in verse 21. And things have gotten worse. Any pretense of godliness in Eli's sons has fallen away. It's kind of like probably at one point they said, well, you know, we've been pretending to be godly, but our actions have given us away. Everybody knows that we're, we're, we don't care. We don't care about God. We don't care about His Word. So let's stop keeping up pretenses, Right? And so they literally and quite dramatically stopped keeping up pretenses. Now they're not just breaking ceremonial law. They are now abusing their position of spiritual leadership in Israel to have illicit sexual relationships with the women at the very door of the tabernacle. Barring repentance, sins of defiance always go in this direction. When you are knowingly defying God, at first you try to keep things kind of hidden. And then as you get more and deeper into that sin, you just stop keeping up pretenses. What's the point? This is uh, characteristic of how sin works in our lives. And this is what happens. Sin left unchecked will always take us places we never thought we would go. Eli's sons now were complete apostates, rebellious, defiant, deeply wicked, literally spitting in the face of God. But... They were still the priests of God. In verses 23 through 25, Eli rebukes them. But by this point, Eli had abdicated his fatherly and high priestly role for so long that his children were literally past the point of no return. He had 
refused to be the proper father and refused to be the proper high priest, refused to, um, part, to take his responsibility seriously for so long, he turned a blind eye for so long that by this point, it was just too late. So he rebukes them, and it's a, it's a token rebuke, but it's genuine. He says this, Why do ye such things? For I hear of your evil dealings by all this people. Nay, my sons, for it is no good report that I hear. Ye make the Lord's people to transgress. If one man sin against another, he says, the judge shall judge him. But if a man sin against the Lord, who shall entreat for him? Eli's rebuke was far too little, far too late. He tells them everything that they already know, that they're doing evil, that they're leading people into sin, that these things are wrong. But then he warns them, and he gives them a right warning. If one man sin against another man, a human man judges him. There can be mercy, there can be uh, entreatment, you can have a, a, an advocate come and, and help your case, but, but when a man sins against the Lord, he stands alone, his sin before God. Who will entreat for him? Well, we have an intercessor now, don't we? We have one that stands between us and God. We have one that will, for, that has forever mediated between us and God. That is the man Christ Jesus. At this time, though, who was the mediator? Who was the one that stood between the sins of the people and God? the very people doing the sin. The high priests themselves. They were the ones that were supposed to be standing between God and the people. They were the ones that were supposed to be entreating God for mercy. And yet they were the ones that were leading the people into the deepest of sin. And that was Eli's warning. That was his warning. Who's going to stand between you and God because you're supposed to be standing between the people and God? Well, Eli's sons are unaffected by their father's pleas. For repentance. And this rejection turned out to be their final warning. God would soon take their lives from them and remove the wickedness that plagued the nation through their actions. Verse 25 and 26 says this, uh, the end of verse 25 and verse 26, notwithstanding, they hearkened not unto the voice of their father because the Lord would slay them. And the child Samuel grew on and was in favor both with the Lord and also with men. And here's the contrast, right? We have these wicked men laying with the women at the gate of the tabernacle, uh, disobeying God's ceremonial laws, abhorring the sacrifices of God, making God's people to abhor the Word of God. And then there's Samuel. Samuel, a young man who grew and was in favor with God and man. Only twice this idea is mentioned in the Bible in relation to Samuel's childhood. And then in Luke chapter 2, verse 52... The same thing is said of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, that as a young man he grew in favor both with God and with man. Well, knowledge is good, but knowledge is not very helpful to us if it doesn't have application. So let's take a few moments as we close today and apply these truths to our lives. Our first application is this. members of Legacy Baptist Church, fellow believers, your actions reflect your heart. Your actions reflect your heart. It really doesn't matter if you take on the label Christian or not. I know many people that Christian has become so watered down they won't even call themselves that anymore. 
They call themselves born-again Christians or Holy Spirit-indwelled Christians and, 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 or Holy Spirit-indwelled believers or born-again believers. They say the, the title Christian, but whatever title you call yourself by, it's just a title. It, whatever we call our church, they're just labels. Whatever position you might have, it's just a position. Titles, associations, whatever history your family has, whatever Christian history, whatever religious history, it's just history. These things mean only as much as the degree to which they are reflected in your actions. You call yourself a Christian. Good. Are you living like Christ? That's what Christian means, right? Little Christ. Are you living it? You call yourself a child of God. Good. Are you acting like a child of God? Eli's sons were priests of Jehovah's God. They were in the lineage of the high priest Aaron. They were only two generations removed from Aaron himself. They ministered in the tabernacle. They stood before the Lord. They were seen by the entire nation of Israel as spiritual leaders, but they were wicked. They had no personal relationship with God and their actions reflected their heart. Jesus asked the Pharisees, Yes, in Matthew 12.34, I apologize, the reference on the top of the screen is wrong. But this is Matthew 12.34. Jesus said this to the Pharisees. O generation of vipers, how can you, being evil, speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh. A good man, out of the good treasure of his heart, bringeth forth good things. And an evil man, out of the evil treasure bringeth forth evil things. You can't cheat the system. Your actions, your thoughts, your words, those things that are coming out of you, that is who you are. You can pretend to be something that you're not, but it doesn't change who you are. You're a believer? Good. You're acting like a believer? You're obeying God's Word? Much, much better. Paul would warn the Romans about this as well. You see the reference, right? Paul would warn the Romans in Romans chapter 2, verses 17 through 24, and he'd say this. He's talking to the Jews in Rome, and he says this, Behold, thou art called a Jew, and restest in the law, and makest thy boast of God, and knowest his will, and approvest the things that are more excellent, being instructed out of the law, and art confident that thou thyself art a guide of the blind, a light of them which are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of babes, which hast the form of knowledge and the truth and the law. Thou therefore which teachest another, teachest thou not thyself? Thou that preachest a man should not steal, dost thou steal? Thou that sayest a man should not commit adultery, dost thou commit adultery? Thou abhorrest idols. Thou that abhorrest idols, dost thou commit sacrilege? Thou that makest thy boast in the law, through breaking the law, dishonorest thou God? Then he says this at the end of this passage, For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles through you. That was the state of Eli and his sons. They said, we follow the law. They said, God is our king. They said all of these things, but that's what they said. That's what they maybe even taught, but their actions showed them to be hypocrites. And Paul says that when we do this, Christians, when we say, yes, the Bible is true, 
Yes, the Bible is true. And the Bible says, Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not bear false witness. And people see us as Christians doing everything that the Bible says we ought not do. The name of God is blasphemed through you. The people look at you and say, Aha! That's what a Christian is. Right? I don't want any part of that. Paul would go on to say to those that were reading this, those who were Jews by nationality, he'd say the Jew in the spiritual context is not the man who is one outwardly, but the one who, man who is one inwardly in heart, who has heard and responded to the Word of God. Maybe you sit in the seat today and you've been living a lie. You look good, you act good, but your heart is a mess. Maybe you aren't even a believer. You just know the game so well. You've conjured up all the actions and attitudes to make others think that you are. And so others would look at you and say, oh yeah, he's a Christian, but you know your heart and you know what comes out of your heart. You know your thoughts and your actions when no one's looking. You know that there's absolutely nothing in you that wants to please God. Or maybe you are a believer. You truly do love the Lord and desire to please Him and you desire to do what's right, but you have submitted yourself back to those weak and beggarly elements of sin. But you have put yourself back into the, slave, the, 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 the slavery of sin and you are living this sinful life of slavery even though you are a believer. And in doing so, Paul says, the name of God is blasphemed through you. Either way, we must heed the warning and the example of 1 Samuel 2 that it really doesn't matter what we're called. It didn't matter that Eli's sons were called the priests of God because they weren't living it. It doesn't matter what position we hold. What matters is what we do, what we say, what we think. It matters what is in our hearts. But may I take this in another direction? May I encourage you a little bit this morning? We see that Elkanah and Hannah were the embodiment of virtue. Their selfless love for God, their obedience to God's Word, their love for their child resounded in Samuel's heart and brought him to a place uh, where he saw the contrast. Hannah was obedient to her vow. Elkanah was careful to lead his wife into godliness. And their example formed the very foundation of Samuel's virtue. Parents, May I encourage you this morning by reminding you that your godly example, that your godly choices, that when the good things that are in your heart come out as you seek to serve the Lord, your children are watching. Grandparents, your grandkids are watching. Your nieces, your nephews are watching. Your brothers and sisters are are watching, and even if you can't have a, the, the greatest direct influence depending on circumstances and relationships over certain people in your life, people are watching you. And when you reflect all of the virtue that you ought to reflect as a child of God, that consistency of life and character will speak volumes in the hearts of those who watch you and look up to you. And when we obey God's Word, others will see that difference. They will see the difference between the guy who says he's a Christian but does whatever he wants and the guy who is living as 
a Christian, as a follower of Jesus Christ. Your actions reflect your heart. Second, this morning, you will answer for where you lead others. This thought follows closely on the previous thought. To whatever degree you have been given the privilege of influencing others, parents, grandparents, brothers, sisters, aunts, uncles, nieces, nephews, to whatever degree you have been given the privilege of influencing others, God will hold you accountable. Whether you're a parent influencing your children or a grandparent, friend, neighbor, pastor, discipler, to whatever degree others look at you and seek to follow your example, you will be held accountable for where you lead them. Now, what am I not saying? I'm not saying that if your children turn out wrong, it's your fault. Inherently. Inherently. That if your children make wrong decisions, it's your, that you'll stand before God and answer for their wrong decisions. Because every man stands before God and answers for their own decisions. But, parents, if you lead your children in the wrong direction, you will answer to God for that. If you lead your children into sin, if you show your children a hypocritical way of living that guides them into hypocrisy, then to the degree that you led them into that, you will answer before God. God saw the sin of Eli's sons as a greater level of abhorrence because they caused others in Israel to abhor the sacrifice of God. So I'm not saying, neighbor, that if your neighbor ends up in hell, it's your fault. We know that that's not true. Every man will stand before God and answer for his own belief or unbelief. But if your neighbor knows that you're a Christian, and every time they see you, you are doing unchrist-like things, and thus they conjure up in their hearts a disdain for the Word of God because of you, you will answer to God for the degree to which you were a poor example to them. Sin loves company. We always feel better about our own sin when others are doing it too. But if you lead others into sin, just know that to the degree that you've led, you will stand before God accountable. One more point and we're finished. Number three, you are not a slave to your circumstances. You are not a slave to your circumstances. Samuel was a young man who grew up under some pretty bad influences. Eli and his sons were his example on a day-in, day-out basis. Eli was a man who did indeed love God. He knew the Lord. So perhaps Eli saw Samuel as a second chance to raise someone right. But Eli still had these adopted big brothers who didn't know the Lord. I mean, excuse me, Samuel still had these adopted big brothers that didn't know the Lord. But just because Samuel was surrounded by bad examples... This does not mean that he could not, nor does it mean he did not choose to live a virtuous life. We are not a slave to the circumstances that surround us. Maybe you didn't come from a Christian family. Maybe you've never had good examples of what it is to be a good father and a good husband, or a good wife and a good mother, good church leader, a proper friend. But we serve a God who is able to do in your heart what cannot otherwise be done. We serve a God that can work in you in spite of your circumstances and can even give you special and unique ministries because of the experiences that you have had. So you had a rough home life. Well, don't use that as an excuse to be less godly. Allow your rough home life to be a means by which you can help and bless others who have a rough home life. 
Allow the, God to do in you what perhaps your home life didn't provide for you. To be the father you never had. To be the friend you never had. To fill that void that you were longing for. And then show others how God can do it for them. God never wastes trouble on us because He loves us. And we must never use our external circumstances as excuses for our sinful behavior. James 4.17 tells us this, Therefore to him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not, to him it is sin. If you know to do good, then you ought to do good. If you've been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ, then you have every tool necessary at your disposal to become everything and anything that God wants you to become for His glory. What a dramatic contrast we saw today. A contrast between a man that had every reason to be godly and virtuous. Two men, in fact. That had every reason to be godly and virtuous. That had the, 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 the godly family, the godly heritage, that had the godly titles. Everything was in place for them to be godly men. But they squandered their lives in deep rebellion and sin. Children, don't think that just because you have godly parents, that means you will become a godly person. Don't think that you are immune from the dangers of sin and rebellion and apathy and apostasy because you're from a godly family. Eli's sons are a warning to us. But what a different example we have in Samuel. A young man who consistently lived before the Lord in virtue and obedience. So which path have you chosen today? How are you living your lives today? Are you like the Eli, like Eli's sons? Are you that person that you've got all the titles and you know what to do and, and you understand the system, but you just don't live it? Or are you like Samuel? A young and his parents. Young man and godly man and woman who served the Lord in honesty, integrity of their hearts, loved the Lord, pursued Him, pursued virtue, while our actions, that which is coming out of our heart, that which is running through our mind, that which comes out of our mouth, these things will tell us where we are. May God help us to be genuine in our faith. And may our faith be properly reflected in our actions. Let's close.